Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Our reading for today is taken from the book of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competence to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were 
in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior, Father, we worship and praise you right now. Father, we thank you because of your word, which is powerful, which is sharp. Your word, which goes into places and causes changes that we can't imagine, but it does the things that you want it to do. Father, we pray that as your word goes out today and at different times through this ministry, we pray, oh God, that it will achieve great transformation in the lives of people. To the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Hi there. Let me add my welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead Westminster Chapel. Thank you also for joining us on this special VE weekend, celebrating the end of the Second World War. But what some people don't know is that that victory actually came somewhat out of nowhere some years before. See, 80 years to this very day, on the 10th of May 1940, Adolf Hitler ordered a massive military onslaught against France and Belgium. This pushed the troops right back to the coast with nowhere to go and it looked like annihilation for the British army at least. So King George VI called for a national day of prayer and our strategists went to work coming up with what became this amazing Dunkirk rescue plan. The nation prayed like never before. Cathedrals were packed out, it's said to be queues outside to try and get in as the nation turned to pray. And those prayers were answered by miraculous weather. Weather that kept the German Luftwaffe grounded and weather that became a beautifully calm sea as a whole flotilla of ships crossed the English Channel to come back rescuing 338,000 troops. That rescue was necessary because those troops would then be able to go back four years later and take part in the Normandy invasion, which we call D-Day. And that victory that kept coming was the decisive blow that really began the end for the German army at that time. D-Day led inevitably to V-E-Day. I'm sharing this story because it's an example of God bringing victory out of nowhere. And that's the theme that this series we're starting today, a 12-week study in the book of Daniel, is all about a finding courage in a time of crisis. Crises are very challenging. We're living through the coronavirus. It's not a war, but it's a crisis of another type. Imagine, though, what it would be like for Daniel and his friends in the 6th century as they are besieged by a foreign empire and taken from their homes and forced to go and serve this empire. Everything different, everything changed, terrifying situation to be in. I think you might be able to identify with that, that fear. And it's in times of crisis that it's hard to hold on to a good and true perspective. Take a look at this. What do you see? Victory is nowhere or victory is now here. It's easy to lose perspective in times of crisis and to feel like victory is nowhere. I think even the most mature 
follower of Jesus could understandably and perhaps even should to be a normal person be asking questions like where is God what's going on I don't understand this it looks dark where is the hope in all of this it reminds me of those disciples on the Emmaus road Luke chapter 24 in the first century biography they are so discouraged as they're walking along this road and yet Jesus is right there with them. The risen, the victorious Jesus is with them, that yet they're living in defeat. Their eyes, it says, were kept from seeing Jesus. It doesn't tell us why, but I think it's because of their discouragement. They were living in defeat, mourning the death of Jesus when he was living gloriously, victoriously, walking with them. And this is the challenge of this series, to hold on to hope against all the odds, to believe and not concede, even in difficult times. Victory is not nowhere. Victory is now here because God delights to bring victory out of nowhere. That's his modus operandi. That's really the way that this whole book is structured. It's shaped. That's the outworking of this incredible historical sixth century book. And I did say historical. So much uh, evidence, archaeology, things that point to the Bible getting it right on its facts in this book. So the besieging, the destruction of Jerusalem, 587 BC, Bible tick correct. King Nebuchadnezzar is on the phone at the time. Tick, Bible correct. Some people have questioned its accuracy. They say that Belshazzar, who's mentioned as the king or the regent ruling in chapter 5, that there's no evidence of him existing outside of the Bible. But in 1854, the Nabonidus cylinders were discovered, which reference Belshazzar being the eldest son of King Nabonidus, who's a kind of distant successor down the line from Nebuchadnezzar. They had to eat humble pie. The Bible, again, tick, gets it right. Even the final verse of chapter one, which alludes to King Cyrus coming, he's going to be the victorious king to take over from the Babylonians. He's the leader of the Medo-Persians and he's prophesied, predicted about in the Bible to come and bring liberation. We have the 539 BC Cyrus Cylinder is in the British Museum that records this emancipation proclamation that he gives, releasing the people in captivity so they could go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Daniel is a historical, reliable book, and this book tells us about God's upside down, mustard seed-like kingdom bringing ways of establishing victory out of nowhere. And this is how the book begins. It begins by painting perhaps one of the bleakest, most desperate moments, most humiliating moments in Jewish history. The besieging of the capital city itself by a foreign pagan empire. It looks like there's no hope. But if we read the passage carefully, we discover it is absolutely full of hope. So today I want to give you three reasons for that hope. Then we'll take a little break and then we will come back and we will seek to respond. Because of this hope, how should we live? So here's reason number one for hope is that God is in control. 
Verse 2 begins, the Lord gave. History is not happening haphazardly. God is in control of all of it. Life is not random. There is purpose and meaning, therefore, behind everything. Now, if you'd have read the book of Jeremiah at this time or heard him speak, you would understand and be able to interpret exactly what was happening. It's all happening in fulfillment of what Jeremiah had said. God is in control, yet he is also allowing fully people to make their own decisions and hold them accountable for those decisions. And he's right now holding the nation of Israel accountable for its unrepentance, for its crimes against God and humanity. See, God, in his grace, had previously sent the prophet Jonah to the evil city of Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire that the Babylonians took over from. They repented after just three days of Jonah preaching and a pretty terrible message at that. Jeremiah has been preaching for about 23 years and the nation of Israel still hasn't repented. God gave them warning after warning and now he's giving them over, handing them over to their sin, if you like, and to the Babylonians. This is scary in some ways. But it is encouraging as well that it means that there is meaning and purpose to this life. And that if God is good, good purpose can be found. It may not be easy for us to see um, because we look from an inferior earthly perspective. But from God's perspective, there will be good purpose. He can't but act in good ways because God by his very nature is good. This means that God is in control through the coronavirus. Did he cause it? No, I'm not suggesting that. But he is in control of all the chaos that it's creating. And that means that there's real hope for us all that the coronavirus isn't in charge. God is and God is good. And that means that if you're watching this right now, God is in control so much that he has orchestrated it for you to be listening because God cares about you and because God wants to encourage you and reach you and he wants you in his kingdom family. Ah, but is God really good? You might be thinking, well, I want to outwork that through the next point. The second reason for hope is that you are not alone. Verse 2 continues. The vessels are taken captive. Note, they're not destroyed because God is in control. And they're taken to Babylon and kept with all the other religious artifacts. The vessels, these precious artifacts from the temple in Jerusalem, speak of the presence of God. And we have here a retelling of an earlier Bible story, 1 Samuel chapter 5. And it's there that the Ark of the Covenant, this most holy of all the artifacts, which spoke of, again, the presence of God, the glory of God, it's where God met with his people, is taken into captivity by the Philistines, an enemy pagan nation, and put in their temple to Dagon, a false god. And what happens? Well, after one day of the presence of God being in the temple, this Dagon statue falls to the ground flat on his face. And that is a picture of Daniel chapter 4. It's King Nebuchadnezzar falling flat on his face in repentance before the awesome God. 
a victory of God brought about out of nowhere. Then day two happens. So they put the, the Dagon statue back up and they wake up that day to find that it has been smashed this time, fallen on the floor. That's a picture of Daniel chapter five of the regent king Belshazzar, who blasphemously takes these artifacts, the cups from the temple and uses them to drink a toast to pagan gods. The handwriting on the wall comes, he is judged, God raises up Cyrus, the Medo-Persians, to come and wipe them out. He had all the warnings in advance of that, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, Daniel and his friends speaking to him, but he didn't act on them, Belshazzar. What we have here is an extraordinary picture of God having to judge his people. He wouldn't be just if he didn't but mercy triumphing over judgment because God doesn't just write them off and send them away. God chooses to go willingly with his people into captivity. They are not alone. God's presence is with them through these vessels, through these artifacts. And we see that throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. God is with them. They are not alone. God was with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace, that fourth angelic figure there, the son of God with them. And he's there in the lion's den with Daniel, making sure those lions won't hurt him. God remarkably chooses to allow himself to be taken captive and abused, to go with his people. This is an incredible picture of the cross, that God comes in Christ and allows himself to be taken captive on the cross, nailed to this brutal wooden execution tool, to be abused physically and verbally, insulted, mocked, tortured, that he would taste death for you, go down to the grave and be raised up with resurrection power and glory and victory over sin that we deserve to be judged for and bringing life. Wow, what a saviour. And you can know that victory yourself simply by faith, simply by turning from your sin, your wrongdoing, and seeking to trust in Jesus. If you want to do that now, just click on the prayer link below. That would be great. It's important to note as well that the Ark of the Covenant never really is restored fully until King David comes and he takes it back to the new capital, Jerusalem. And King David is another example of God's ways, God's victory through humiliation, if you like, God's unexpected upside down ways, because David is the runt of the family litter. He is even forgotten about by his own father. He's a nobody that God shines his spotlight on and raises up this young boy to defeat the giant Goliath, to unite the 12 tribes of Israel and to restore their fortunes. This is how God works. Think of the uneducated fishermen, Jesus's disciples, those that he chooses. We wouldn't choose them, but God chooses them. The country bumpkins looked down upon by the southerners and all of that. And he uses them to change the world for the better, to turn it upside down. Paul, writing in his letters about this, says God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And here we have Daniel and his friends, barely 20. They don't know the language. They don't know the culture. 
hey, they are immigrants, foreigners, almost certainly looked down upon by others. Yet God anoints them and he gifts them. They become 10 times better than everybody else. And he uses them to transform and to bring his light. I tell you, if you feel like a nobody, there's hope because God delights to use nobodies to reveal his glory, to show that it's not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. In the original Hebrew, it says the temple of the God. God is coming to demonstrate his supremacy over all things, over all false gods and false idols that people worship. The definite article is deliberate. And yet all of the, the vessels, the artifacts from the temple are put in with all these other religious um, treasures that Babylon has collected. They are relativized. It's an interesting thing that people would say today, pretty equivalent of all the religions, they just... Uh, all the same expressions uh, like different routes up uh, a mountain to try and meet with God. They're more or less sort of similar to each other. To say that any one is true and the others are false, that would be wrong. That would be arrogant. But think of it this way. If I get on my bathroom scales, they say, sadly, 75.1 kilograms. Now, I would like them to say 65 kilograms, um, but they don't. Now, I could decide, well, I'm going to choose that they say 65 kilograms. It's what I feel and think that matters. Um, or I could have an argument with my scales for being arrogant, that they dare to say that all the other weights apart from 75.1 uh, are, are wrong. You know, that's, that's not fair, isn't it? Well, it's pretty similar when it comes to thinking about all the different world religions and worldviews that are out there. They can't all be true because they are contradictory. They're not just a few kilograms apart on the scales. They're measuring different things altogether. Some centimetres, others measuring kilograms or some measuring nothing at all. There are those that postulate um, no God, some one God, others hundreds of gods, many different expressions of what salvation is or looks like, heaven, nirvana, enlightenment, and also how you get there. Almost all of them are a ladder, steps you have to do to climb up to try and make yourself good enough for God. The Christian God, he's totally unique because he comes down to do what no human being can do. No human being can be morally perfect and righteous in the way that's needed for our salvation. So God comes from heaven to earth, takes on the form of a human, dies for us on the cross as our substitute in our place so that we can find freedom and joy. That is amazing. There's no God who's done that um, in history ever. Our God is unique. But there's more in this passage. These artifacts, the vessels, are taken to Babylonia or better translated, the land of Shinar. We first come across Shinar in Genesis chapter 11. Right at the beginning of the Bible, it's where the Tower of Babel is built on the plain of Shinar. Humankind come together to do away with God and it says, make a name for themselves. So God is coming to Babylon, to Project Babel 2.0, 
to make a name for himself in the place where people are making a name for themselves. There's something interesting going on as well with the names here. The empire wants to rename them to assimilate them, but their names are special and they live on through their witness, through God outworking in their lives. So what are their names? Uh, Daniel's names is my God or the Lord is my judge. Hananiah's, Hananiah's name is the Lord God shows grace. Azariah's name means the Lord God helps us and Mishael's name means God is unique or there is no one like our God. Their names are not their own names, their names are the expression of the the name, the, the character, the being, the glory of God, which continues to outshine through them, even though their names have been taken away from them. See, you, they can call you whatever they want, but they cannot stop the power of God. Nothing and no one can stand in Yahweh's way. To the moment that you cross the line of faith, you trust in God, you become united to him and his light, his name takes up residence inside you. And yes, we can kind of be bad witnesses, we can sin, we can backslide, or we can kind of mask some of that light. You know, we can kind of soot up the glass on the lamp. But I tell you, you can't stop that light from shining. God's light shines forth. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The word of God has power. The name of God is above every name and he will have supremacy over all things. No matter how weak, fallen, frail we might be, God's glory will shine through us. He shines through Daniel and his friends throughout the book of Daniel. It is glorious. I love the way Terry Virgo gives voice to this in his excellent book here. Terry Virgo is the founder of New Frontiers, if you don't know. He says this, Some people argue strongly that in our evangelism we must proclaim a very pure presentation of the gospel to the unsaved, implying that only a very thorough and detailed proclamation of the gospel, including a painstaking inclusion of every aspect of its truth, will produce authentic converts. I beg to differ, he says. I am amazed how people are genuinely saved by exposure to the merest fragment of gospel contents, because the gospel has power, or the briefest encounter with maybe a crumpled tract or the testimony of a backslider feebly communicated in the most unlikely setting. It's because God's name is above every name. His glory will win out. There is hope for all of us. I think it's right at this moment just to stop and to worship, to worship, to give thanks and glory due to our Father in heaven. Hallowed be his triumphant, victorious, glorious name. His character, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his beauty. Now you want to close your, you might want to close your eyes or just join in. But whatever you take a moment to give thanks and worship.
was a great song. So far we've learned that there is hope. Because God is in control, you are not alone, and his name is above every name. And because of this, we can have courage to step out in faith, to let the light of his name, his glory, shine out through us. That's what Daniel and his friends did, and that is the final point. Believe, don't concede. In verse 12, Daniel and his friends asked for a test. This test is the centre of the chapter, the heart of the book of Daniel. And it's part of a chiastic structure, Hebrew way of writing. So we have bookends. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar is matched by verse 21, King Cyrus. The 70 years almost between them. And then you go in a line and we get Daniel and his friends' education started and then his their education completed and you keep working in till you get to this test the food test this test was significant for daniel and his friends it is symbolic for the whole people of god of what god was seeking to do in them at that time and it's significant for us as well in the time that we live in this coronavirus pandemic but also particularly in London, in the secular culture that we are surrounded by? Will we be assimilated to it? Will we let the world squeeze us into its mould? Or will we, like Daniel, set apart God, God in our hearts as first place and not defile ourselves or let ourselves be estranged from God's ways? Now, there's been some debate about these food tests and why did they say no to this and not other stuff and it's it's difficult perhaps to understand some have said that it's to do with old testament food laws about what is clean and unclean and there may be some truth in that i think that there's something more important going on though about allegiance to eat of the king's food was to imbibe of him to eat him really into yourself and to 
make a statement about being owned by him. Think of communion, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, symbolically God being eaten of by us as we take in him and feast on his death and resurrection. They would not want to do that for a foreign pagan king. God was first in their hearts. The food they eat as well is interesting. It's probably more accurately translated seeds, seed food that would grow into vegetables. They are coming to bring the seed of God's new creation, God's kingdom coming, which is going to grow. Think of Jesus's mustard seed analogy for the way that the kingdom comes, that it starts small and is going to grow bigger and bigger. Here, Jesus is bringing his new life through these amazing men. So where has the world squeezed you into its mold? How much? It's very easy to let this happen from whether that's, you know, fashion like me squeezed into skinny jeans now or even my accent when I was working in Kenya for many years my accent changed to the point when people when I came back they laughed at me because I'd been acclimatized in that way I didn't even notice what about you how has the world squeezed you into its mold well for Daniel I think there were maybe particularly two areas that were of temptation the first was comfort they were offered wonderful food, lovely wine, but they said no. They chose a more uncomfortable way of living. For us, we've got so many comforts around us. Amazon Prime, Netflix, now Disney Plus as well. There's nothing wrong within them just themselves, but maybe we indulge in them too much because we're worth it, we deserve it. Or perhaps we chase after comfort as an idol, working so hard to try and obtain it. And if we don't get it and others don't give it to us when we think we deserve it, we get angry and bitter. Or another temptation for Daniel and his friends was worldly success. They were given amazing education, very impressive qualifications. They were given you know, top-ranked civil servants jobs that were coming, certain amazing career track for them, and in a phenomenally impressive city, ancient wonder of the world, hanging uh, gardens of Babylon. You've got amazing architecture as well. They would give all of that up. They didn't find their value, their worth in that stuff. They found it in following God. We see their willingness to give it up in the fiery furnace and the lion's den. So how about you? How about us, the church? Do we give ground to worldly definitions of success? Do we chase after that? Do we value people by their appearance rather than their attitude? Are we about externals, the head and shoulders people, or do we look to the heart, the internals like God does? For us, it's about people's hidden faithfulness or about how many followers that we see that they have are we looking for God to use the foolish things of the world and seeking to support and encourage them or do we judge them and look down on them the same way that our society might do here's the big question are we following the way of humility of humiliation allowing ourselves to be humiliated so that God can bring and build his victory in and around us. That's the challenge of Daniel, to live with courage, 
to be stand out different from the world and to make room and space deliberately by faith to allow God's glory and his light to shine out through us, to not compromise. So what could you do? Maybe that means being bold and not compromising to fear and say, I'm going to invite a friend personally to a church service. I'm going to step out and I'm going to try and build community when it seems like no one wants to be together. I'm going to, I'm going to unite them online. I'm going to build some friendship together around them. I'm going to work hard for that. Maybe it means radical generosity. So many people in need right on our doorstep as well as overseas. One of the moments where I really encountered the reality of faith was when I was at university. In my first year, I wasn't a Christian and some of the Christians I got to know, it just came up in conversation that they were talking about the money that they were giving to the Christian union that they were a part of, as well as the churches that they attended. To me, when I heard that, that was crazy. Why, as impoverished students, would you give money away so you have less to live on? But it was also amazing because to me, it demonstrated the reality of their faith which helped me to see this isn't something superficial. This isn't something maybe made up. There's something real that's going on here. So what about you? How could you believe and not concede and live with faith? With the hope that Jesus is the true and better Cyrus. That's how the chapter finishes, verse 21. King Cyrus is going to come. He's been prophesied by Isaiah, chapters 44 and 45. There's this great leader who's going to come, who leads the Medo-Persians, going to destroy the Babylonians, and he will result in your release to go home again. Jesus is the true and better Cyrus, who's had his D-Day victory on the cross. The decisive blow has been struck that must result in V-E-Day. The day when he comes again to restore all things, to make everything right, to rebuild his new creation and to make the home that we've been longing for in our hearts as he renews all creation. It's coming. There is hope. Victory is not nowhere. Victory is now here because God delights to bring victory out of nowhere. So let the God of all hope Fill you up with hope today that pushes all discouragement away so that you can see Jesus. Nothing is keeping you from seeing that Jesus is with you. He wants to encourage you and he wants you to know that he is going about his glorious kingdom victory. And he wants you to be on side and on mission with him. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much that you are the God who can bring victory out of nowhere. We thank you that we see that in the cross. Everything looked dark. It looked like that you had lost. Yet in that moment, you were accomplishing the greatest victory the world has ever known. Freedom from sin, suffering, sickness and death. And Lord, we pray with longing for your return to fully establish that rule and reign. And until then, God, fill us up with hope and courage and boldness to go out into this world and to shine like stars, not to compromise, not to conform, but to set apart you in our hearts as first place, Lord God, that many, many might come to know you. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.